0: Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James, designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter.
1: Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. We're glad to have you with us. You can find this episode and more For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Social security is a key source of retirement income for many investors, and it can be notoriously tricky to figure out. Here to help unravel some of the complexity around social security benefits, I'm pleased to be joined remotely by Bob Spence, manager of Raymond James's financial planning consultant team. Bob, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
2: Thanks, Paige. Nice to be here.
1: Can you provide some starting context for us? You've worked with so many investors on social security. What role should social security benefits play within a holistic retirement plan?
2: Well, for many retirees, Social Security is their only reliable source of income outside of their investment assets, and many retirees today don't have pensions. It's just whatever you've been able to save in your Social Security, so it's critical to maximize benefits, and the cold truth is that many financial plans would fail without this lifetime income source.
1: What makes it so complex for investors to really dig into and understand?
2: Well, Social Security, as we know it today, had its beginnings back in 1935 under FDR, and it's grown and expanded to be our national pension and disability system. It's administered by the federal government and has numerous rules. At last count, there are over 2,700, and they can be difficult to understand. So uh, another fascinating and disturbing aspect of the system is that if you make a mistake, no one generally tells you, and benefits can be lost forever. So fortunately, there's people like me that can uh, study this on a daily basis and help uh, provide some help.
1: Well, we're sure going to benefit from some of your perspective today. We're going to talk about some of the primary decision factors when it comes to Social Security benefits. The first one we're going to talk about is age. Why is the age at which someone starts receiving Social Security benefits so important?
2: Well, the knee-jerk reaction is to start benefits as soon as possible. I think people uh, think to themselves that they've worked their whole life and paid into the system, and they just want to make make sure they get something back out of the system. Um, And they're afraid the system is going bankrupt. So there's a bit of a get-it-while-you-can mentality as well. Um, Many people just decide to start benefits when they retire just to replace lost paycheck income. So, but the factors of when you actually should start your benefits are complex and to maximize benefits over your lifetime, and sometimes that of your spouse as well, requires making a thoughtful and informed decision.
1: There's a phrase that comes up a lot when it comes to the timing of starting Social Security benefits, and it's full retirement age, FRA. What is that and what does it mean when it comes to benefits?
2: So full retirement age is simply when the government says that you will receive the full amount of benefits you see in the top right-hand corner of your Social Security statement. For recent retirees born in 1954 or before, it's age 66. And then there's kind of a sliding scale increasing to age 67 for those born in uh, and, and and then it becomes, the full retirement age becomes age 67 for those born in 1960 and after. But Anyone can start benefits as early as age 62. However, if you do start at 62, you won't receive the full amount you see on the statement known as your primary insurance amount. You'll receive a discount of approximately 25% uh, depending on your birthday. And you can wait to take benefits as late as age 70. And by waiting, you'll receive a greater amount.
1: So that you can file as early as 62 as late as 70. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference in benefit amount? How significant is the change between those two ages?
2: Well, the internal deferral growth rate within the system is quite high. If one begins benefits at age 70, they will be 76% higher than if they started at age 62. So this is an, an internal growth rate of over 7% and that's a key reason why it might make sense not to start benefits at 62. So and th- to me this is one of the critical things to understand about social security, the deferral growth rate was put in place back in 1983 when interest rates were much higher and people weren't living as long. Um, interest rates now have come down to a point where the 10-year treasury is at about 1.3%, yet the government will pay you over 7% in a de- in a deferral growth rate for a lifetime social security income stream with survivor benefits built in as well. So to me, this can be thought of as basically an an unusually good investment offer.
1: One of the things that we know about social security is that it's by no means one size fits all. There are a lot of nuances for individuals and their circumstances. What are some of the factors that would influence the timing of when someone should start receiving benefits for some people. Why would it make sense a little earlier? And for others, why would later be a better choice?
2: Yep. So that's the interesting thing with social security planning is we all don't know how long we're going to live. And obviously if you begin benefits at age 62, you you collect eight years of payments versus someone that waits until age 70 uh, and that they do not receive. So it takes about 10 years after one turns 70 for the extra payment amount that you receive to, to allow you to surpass all of those benefits that were not received between the ages of 62 and 70 because you waited. Um, so we generally advise people, if you think you're going to live past your early 80s, consider deferring. And many people today believe they will live into their 90s, and if that's the case, Uh, Deferral can make a lot of sense, and lifetime benefits can be substantially higher. So, And also, another way just to think about Social Security in this way, it can be almost thought of as a form of longevity insurance. And there's another reason to defer for spouses. If the spouse with the higher benefit dies, the other spouse gets to step into the deceased spouse's benefit amount as a survivor benefit. And then should that surviving spouse go on to live a long life, deferral for the original spouse could still make a lot of sense for the couple as a unit. So there's a lot to consider. And on our team, we work hard to lay it all out for our clients so that they can make an informed decision.
1: Let's talk about another one of those primary decision factors to consider, and that's job history, work history. How does uh, you know, retirees' work history impact their Social Security benefits?
2: Well, first, you need at least 40 quarters or 10 years of work history to, to qualify for benefits. And benefits are based upon your top 35 years of working history. So generally, the more you earn, the higher your benefit will be, but benefits are capped for high earners. And the formula is designed to replace more income of lower earners than it does for higher earners
1: how does that play out for investors that were stay-at-home parents for some time in their career are they still eligible for benefits
2: yeah they can still receive what is called the spousal benefit and that's one half of the working spouse's benefit amount
1: what if a retiree still wants to work later in their life maybe it's a part-time job maybe they've pivoted to another industry What if you're still working when you reach age 62, when you could be eligible to start receiving your benefits?
2: Okay, now, so this gets a little tricky. If you're still working when you reach age 62 and you want to start Social Security benefits, there's something called the earned income test. And this test goes all the way back to the origins of the program during the Great Depression, when they wanted people to be fully retired before they started benefits. So back then the thinking was to get older people to actually retire so that younger people could come in and replace their job during the great depression. Um, up until the year that you reach for retirement age with this earned income test, if you earn above $18,960 this year in 2021, the social security administration will withhold $1 of benefits for every $2 above that threshold amount. So basically, this test can jam your ability to begin benefits and can frustrate certain strategies you might be considering. However, once someone reaches their full retirement age, they can earn as much as they want and benefits will not be reduced. So it only applies to people between the ages of 62 and their full retirement age.
1: That amount that's withheld for people between ages 62 and their full retirement age Do they ever get that back or is that sort of, you know, foregone?
2: Yeah. One thing about the earned income test, many people don't understand is that withheld worker benefits will begin to be repaid to you starting at your full retirement age over the remaining over your remaining life expectancy. So you don't actually lose the benefits. Social security says to think of it as a forced suspension. So if you've started benefits and want to go back to work, don't let the earned income test stop you. You just have to kind of be aware that the withholding is going to begin and that you just don't want to be surprised when that happens. But, you know, like with the earned income test, a lot of aspects of Social Security, knowing what I do about the system at this point, my advice is definitely always to seek expert counsel before making any final decisions. And the earned income test is just another reason why that's true, because it can can get a little complicated.
1: Let's talk about taxation of Social Security benefits. How does that come into play?
2: Well, the good news is that for everyone, at least 15% of Social Security benefits are always tax-free. And for those with lower incomes, all of Social Security benefits can be tax-free. So, and again, with everything with Social Security, it gets a little complicated. There's something called provisional income, which is basically all of your normal income sources, plus they add back in any muni bond interest that you might have received. And then they take half of all your social security benefits. And that produces a number. Um, you take this number and apply it to a threshold chart where for single people, if they can stay below 25000 their benefits are actually tax-free. And for married, filing, joint, the number is only 32000 So above those threshold numbers, benefits begin to be taxed until eventually you begin to pay tax on up to 85% of your benefits. Um, So for those that can keep their incomes low in retirement, the tax benefits with Social Security are nice. And it can also affect your decisions in retirement of where to draw money from. For example, if you're below the thresholds and you need $10,000 for an expense, pulling that money from a fully taxable income source, such as an IRA, can mean not only paying taxes on the $10,000 pulled from the IRA, but it can mean more of your Social Security was taxed than would have been had you not done that also. So it's kind of like a double tax hit you have to look out for. Um, so when it comes to Social Security taxation, we always encourage you to address this issue with your financial advisor and tax professional to see how you can potentially make less of your benefits taxable uh, by, by staying below those, those, th- those thresholds.
1: The last big factor that we're going to discuss, and there's got a lot of nuance to it, is how marriage factors into Social Security benefits. You've mentioned a little bit already about filing on a spouse's work history, but can you tell us more about that? What determines the amount that you can receive if you're filing on your spouse's record?
2: Okay, spousal benefits are one one half of your spouse's work benefit amount and you're eligible after one year of marriage, and you'll generally receive spousal benefits unless your own work benefit amount is higher than that. And in that case, you would, only re- you would receive your own work benefit amount.
1: So what if you have your own work record? You're saying that if my full benefit is greater than half of my spouse's benefit, then I cannot file. For, on their for, work record.
2: Right. I mean, you can file, but the Social Security Administration, uh, and on this you can rely upon them, they'll look at whichever one's higher. The spousal benefit, half of your of your spouse, their work record, or one hundred percent of your own work record, and they'll always pay you whichever one's more. So you won't you won't get both.
1: And what happens if your spouse passes away? You mentioned that this is a situation where The time of filing for your benefits, you have to consider not only your own lifespan, but potentially that of your spouse as well.
2: Okay. Survivor benefits are generally 100% of what your spouse was receiving. Instead of like, you know, the spousal benefit was one half. This is 100% of what your spouse was receiving at the time of their death. So for, and for many, this can mean a nice raise at the time of their spouse's death. And it's all part of the spousal strategy and planning that we mentioned earlier. So if your spouse has passed away, I I definitely encourage you to seek advice. There are certain survivor benefit strategies available that can increase your lifetime benefits. And it has to do with you kind of play off your own work record benefit uh, off of the survivor benefit. And you, you can choose whichever one comes out better mathematically how you would go about it. But you can turn on one while waiting for the other one to fully mature. So, for example, you might turn on your survivor benefit, say at age 60, and then at age 70 switch over to your maximized work benefit. So, which the, the the survivor benefit strategy that is ideal can get a little bit complicated, and we can help break that down for you. But the short of it is, you can really increase your lifetime benefits when that when it does work out well. Um, and it, Another interesting thing is if if you don't apply for this, you don't do it correctly, you just miss out on these benefits. So no one at Social Security Administration is going to alert you to any of these strategies. Um, So again, like I said, just knowing what I know about it, always seek help before making your final decision would would be my advice.
1: How does divorce affect spousal benefits?
2: With Divorce, uh, generally think of a 10-year marriage threshold as the main requirement. And if this is met, and if you're not remarried, you're eligible for spousal benefits off of your ex's record. And like, like spousal benefits we talked about earlier, if half of their benefit is more than 100% of your work record, then that's when you would get spousal benefits off of uh, your ex.
1: Does filing benefits on your ex's history affect the benefit that they receive, or are, are they notified that you're filing on their behalf?
2: Nope. that's an interesting question. We get that one quite a bit. I don't, I don't know what that is. That um, ex uh, people when they get divorced, they I don't know if they want the exes to go down more or what. But no, um, um, for instance, someone could be married three times to someone for more than ten years, and all three of those exes could be getting spousal benefits off of them and it wouldn't lower their own benefit amount. So, um, and they're not notified in any way or anything like that. It's just, it just means that um, you you need to be aware that if you're divorced and say your ex was a high earner, that you're eligible, if you meet all their tenure requirements and so forth, um, to receive spousal benefits off of them. That's really all you have to kind of remember.
1: You've spoken about what happens if a spouse passes away, if, you know, a marriage is dissolved, what happens if you've got the combination, you've got an ex-spouse that then passes away?
2: Okay. Well, if you're, if you're married for more than 10 years again, and you did not, there's an interesting rule here is if you did not remarry, but before the age of 60, so you can actually marry again after 60, then you're eligible for survivor benefits off of your your ex so this is really one to look out for for those people who are married more than ten years and maybe a long time ago, and then their ex passes away, so they can op- apply for survivor benefits and oftentimes they can receive a nice raise, which is very beneficial. I know this happened to my own mother, and because of uh you know the nature of what I do, I was able to tell her you know you you divorced uh with dad. A long time ago, but now that he's passed, uh, you should go apply for widow benefits. And she got, personally, she got like about a $12,000 raise. So I've seen it in my own family. And um, like I say, it's definitely one to look out for because it's kind of easy to miss. Um, and beyond that, sometimes even the su- survivor benefit strategies we mentioned earlier are available for exes that qualify for the survivor benefit.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the potential future of the Social Security program. You mentioned you hear sometimes from investors that they've got concerns about the program going bankrupt. What do you see as the the future outlook for this?
2: Well, right now, there's definitely a lot of talk about the program and it's going bankrupt and so forth. The latest Board of Trustees report shows that the trust fund will run dry in about the year 2034. Um, but it is important to understand that 80% of all the benefits paid out come from current payroll taxes. So what that means is that if no changes were made to the program and the trust fund quote unquote went bankrupt, um, when the trust fund runs dry, everyone would receive an immediate 20% cut in benefits. But we have some time between now and 2034, obviously, and Congress, you know, certainly will act and they have historically when, um, when we come under situations like this, like I mentioned earlier, the last time was 1983, um, the most likely change will probably be to raise payroll taxes. So they've done this several times in the past and politicians prefer these slow tax increases on the working population, over cutting benefits of all the people receiving them. And this is also kind of how the program tends to grow over time. Um, President Biden's proposal is to raise payroll taxes for those earning over 400,000. A lot of people have probably heard that. So that's his way to shore up the system. Other ideas include measures such as raising the full retirement age and lowering cost of living adjustments. So, you know, we'll all be keeping a close eye on this, but remember, the last thing politicians want to do is cut the benefits of those already receiving them. And even in the uh, unlikely case, they did cut benefits by a certain percentage. That wouldn't necessarily change the main factors behind making a sound claiming decision. So, for example, I uh, I personally kind of cringe when I hear people deciding to begin benefits at age sixty-two because they've heard that the system is going broke and they're just trying to get money out as soon as they can. Um, I just um, my personal opinion is that's that's not really uh, sound and making a good informed decision. So if you have any more questions about, you know, surrounding this issue, I just encourage you to have a conversation with your financial advisor.
1: Bob, we're so appreciative for your perspective. I've got one last question for you. For listeners who maybe take one thing away from our conversation today, what guidance do you have?
2: All right. Well, um, basically, just if, if I could say one thing about Social Security, from all I know, it's just extremely complex it's very easy to make mistakes that can cost you and your family money forever. And uh, as I've said a few times, just seek advice from someone that deals in it uh, all the time, such as myself, just to make sure that you make the best decision possible before you, before you pull, pull the trigger.
1: Bob Spence, manager of Raymond James's financial planning consultant team. Thank you so much again for speaking with me today. We really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, Paige.
1: Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time.
0: All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC and CUA-insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James & Associates, Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC.